Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to December's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks very much for listening this month. First of all, I'll do a quick recap of the month's news from Battery Materials Review. And then we have an interesting interview with Justin Brown, Managing Director of ASX-listed Element 25, which is trying to get the Butcherbird Manganese Project in Western Australia off the ground. But first of all, a recap of some of the month's features and key news from Battery Materials Review. This month's first feature article discusses the emergence of the Korean battery manufacturers as a major force in Europe and in China, and highlights that their supply chain may be somewhat less well supplied with raw materials than the battery intermediate suppliers to the major Chinese battery manufacturing groups, which seem to have locked in more supply contracts. In our second feature, we discuss the skills shortage, which seems to go much further down the value chain than just raw materials. Focusing now on some of the key news items, Volvo has announced that it will use blockchain technology to track cobalt in order to ensure that the cobalt used for its batteries comes from sufficiently clean sources. It's not the first European car maker to announce this and won't be the last, but we worry that there aren't enough clean sources out there to supply all of the European car makers. We await some more visibility on the recent move by the Chinese Special Purpose Vehicle China Hydrogen Energy Limited to buy out the debt exposure of lithium producer Alita Resources. It won't be a positive for the industry if the mine comes back into production too soon. Also this month, China raised its rare earth mining quota to 132,000 tonnes for 2019, a record level. This, interestingly, seems to coincide quite well with the Mountain Pass startup in the US and could be an attempt to push prices down to force that mine out of the market. It's not, after all, like it hasn't been done before. China's Ministry of Industry and Information Technology announced that henceforth all EV manufacturers would be required to establish EV battery recycling services. This is important considering the number of EV batteries that are currently thrown away as unsuitable. We think that recycling could be a key source of battery raw materials over the next three to five years. In lithium development, there were a fair number of studies published this month and some metallurgical test work as well, and we compare and discuss metallurgical recovery targets. While targeted levels are coming down from the levels suggested one to two years ago, they still look a little high to us given the levels actually achieved in Western Australian hard rock and in Latin American brine operations. In the financing space, it was another dismal month, and financing in the battery materials sector is now down 51% for 2019 to date. Given that the sweet spot for battery demand growth is looking like 2022 to 2023, and that it takes two to three years to finance and build a project, we really need to see a recovery in the financing space next year. Looking downstream now, and CATL and Samsung SDI signed agreements with BMW for more than 10 billion euros of battery cell orders between 2020 and 2031. Samsung SDI also reported that it plans to build a second European plant to take it to a total annual capacity of 18 million cells in Europe. VW announced plans to ramp up its EV, automated driving and mobility spending over the next five years from 44 billion euros to 60 billion. 
That is quite a big number. An interesting report in The Times highlighted that prices for second-hand EVs in the UK has risen 14% in 2019 on strong demand and a shortage of new EV models. Worth highlighting that the best-selling second-hand EVs are the Renault Zoe at around £8,000 and the BMW i3 at around £15,000, both firmly in the mass-market price band. Germany's government and car industry announced a collaboration to increase subsidies for EVs to up to €6,000 per unit between 2020 and 2025. Moving on now to our trade and downstream update, and we flag continued worsening in global EV sales growth in October. But there was also a recovery in lithium-ion battery demand growth in China, and the bifurcation between Chinese and Japanese and Korean import prices for lithium carbonate, highlighting the significant volumes of non-battery-grade lithium material that are being dumped in China. In our materials ranking this month, nickel remains top despite its major correction during the month as it approaches key technical levels. Lithium chemicals remain at the bottom of our ranking, although we've become a bit more constructive, and spodumene concentrate moves up one place as prices move closer to the marginal cost of production. November was a pretty rough month for raw material equities, with only our copper basket in positive territory. Our nickel basket was the worst performer, down 20% for the month, followed by cobalt, as restocking petered out, and vanadium. So that's the end of our news roundup for this issue. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me, or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interview now. So we're very happy today to be joined by Justin Brown. He's the Managing Director of ASX Listed Element 25. Justin, welcome. Good afternoon and thanks for having me. So you are looking to develop the Butcher Bird Manganese Project in the northern part of Western Australia. And you're currently working on the pre-feasibility study. Your scoping study was completed in May 2018. But since then, you've announced quite a significant resource upgrade. And I think it's fair to say that everybody's understanding of the battery-grade manganese market has increased substantially. What's going to be in the PFS that wasn't in the scoping study? Yeah, so I think the PFS will reflect our deeper understanding of the metallurgy of the process. We've done a whole lot more metallurgical test work. But on top of that, we've done a lot of engineering design and we've done a lot of investigation into the correct power solution for the project. So I think the main thing is the level of detail. A scoping study just takes half a dozen assumptions and, and puts some economics around it. The PFS will seek to flesh out those areas of interest in a lot more detail and understand the, the key sensitivities of the project and, and what's required to get it up. Okay, so remind me what the updated resource is compared to the previous one. Yeah, so we've increased that by uh, a significant chunk to about 263 million tonnes of manganese ore, containing around about 26 million tonnes of manganese metal or manganese equivalent. And that's about a 30% increase in the overall global resource. So it's a, it's a big manganese resource, and it's one that will, uh, will underpin a very long mine life for the project. And what's the sort of scope of the project that you're envisaging in terms of the sort of size, et cetera? So interestingly, most resource projects are constrained by resource. Ours is, is not facing that situation. So really the, the question for us is what is the minimum economic module size we can get up and running 
before we look to grow aggressively to take advantage of the massive resource size that we have. So we've currently got a base case of about 100,000 tonnes of manganese metal production. And if we operate at that level, then our current resource base uh, potentially provides a mine life in excess of, a, of 100 years. So our, our base case will be 50 years. And the reason for that is looking beyond that is, is rather meaningless from an economic analysis point of view. But it's by no means a reflection of the limits of the resource, which will carry us forward for decades to come. The capex is not yet defined. We're just in the final stages of the first round of capex estimation, which will be delivered as part of the pre-feasibility study. Okay, thanks very much. And can you just talk a little bit about the mineralogy of the manganese minerals in the ore? Yeah, so it's a little bit different. It's not the same. There's kind of a group of manganese minerals in South Africa that are one of the main producers of manganese globally. There's also a different type of manganese ore in China, which is a carbonate ore, which is different to the South African ores. And then we've got a different suite of minerals as well. And that makes our ore body quite unique and amenable to this unique production uh, pathway that we're envisaging for this project. Okay, so uh, you brought it up. Can you talk a little bit about the processing pathway that you've developed? And I believe it's uh, been developed as part of a joint venture with CSIRO. Yeah, not so much a joint venture, but it's 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 one that they certainly helped us to do. So we faced with a you know big question: what is the right way to process this material? And we got given a little bit of government grant funding to investigate the problem. And CSIRO were integral in helping us to unlock the value proposition of this project, whereby we can use a a new low-temperature, low-pressure, very rapid leach to extract the manganese in the solution, and that's something that's quite different to all bodies elsewhere around the world. So that's one of our key competitive advantages, and that's what's allowed us to go down this high-value product pathway in terms of producing manganese metal and battery-grade manganese sulfate. So it was really the key to unlocking the value proposition of ButcherBoon. And within that study, you've noted that the process is quite energy-intensive. Given that energy costs in Western Australia are not the lowest ones out there, what are you planning to do to sort of reduce the energy costs for for the business? It's a great question, and it's one that has been a feature of our investigation. So when we first looked at commercialising ButcherBird using electrolytic process, you're right. Obviously, one of the first things that jumps out is that you need a lot of electricity to do that. And we've got the good fortune to have a natural gas pipeline that goes straight through the project, so literally sits on top of our ore body. And so we had a we had really good access to a, a relatively cheap base case power supply through gas generation. Gas prices in WA are relatively cheap compared to to elsewhere, and so that was that was quite a big tick. But what we've done since then is actually look at how can we improve on that. And what we found is that the cost of installing renewable generation in Australia, particularly on long term contracts, so in our case, say a twenty or twenty five year IPP or slash PPA contract, we can actually bring costs of power down significantly below a gas-only base case. And in fact, we believe we can get very, very close to parity with other competitors like China and elsewhere in the world. So we're confident we're very close to cracking the power problem and that'll be one of the key pillars of this project. That's interesting. And also you'll be using batteries as well, which uh, will be good too. Can you talk a little bit about the market for battery-grade manganese chemicals? What's the demand like now, but what are you expecting it to be over the next four or five years with the the growth in NCM batteries? Yeah, it's another good question. I mean, it's a a crystal ball question. The world's seen already a big growth in demand for these chemicals, but off a very low base. So if you go back a few years, the demand for these high-purity products for batteries was 
was limited, manganese included, but we're already seeing high sort of teens percentage growth year on year. And the expectation that when you talk to most people is that the explosion, if you like, will happen around 2024, 2025. And that's where everyone sees this hockey stick curve really kicking in. And, you know, right now, manganese sulfate has a market of probably around 140,000 tonnes per annum globally. But, you know, we may see a tenfold increase in that over the next five five to ten years. So we're talking about very steep growth curves and, uh, you know, steep demand growth, which bodes well for pricing. And, and of course, if you're well positioned to supply into that market, you should do very well. What sort of purity levels are needed for manganese sulfate going into battery applications? So it depends on the end users and the type, specific type of battery you're going into, but generally very high purity. So in the case of manganese sulfate, you're talking 99 plus percent, but it's actually not necessarily the absolute purity that's the most important. It's really batteries are very sensitive to certain impurities, like iron is, is a no-no. You can, have, you can only have very, very low levels of iron. Some of the other metals like copper and zinc are similar, yet other impurities are less sensitive. So it's, it's a case-by-case and it depends on the end user's requirements, but very high purity as a general rule. And you've done and reported a fair amount of metallurgical test work. Will you be building a, a pilot plant or a demonstration plant for this project? We will. So one of the next key phases of work is to do just that. We've got proposals in place to do that and budgets in place to do that. So following the conclusion of the PFS, we'd look to move into that phase of work and that'll involve a lab-scale pilot, which will be a continuous operation pilot plant, and that'll be the final piece of the puzzle in terms of demonstrating the robustness of the metallurgical process that we intend to implement at ButcherBoot. Okay. And what sort of timeline are you looking for, sort of EFS, feasibility study, next catalyst, et cetera, for the market? Yeah, so obviously, as I just alluded to before, the pilot plant is a key piece that that'll then set in stone, if you like, the engineering design parameters, which will go into a definitive feasibility study in the first half of next year. We would like to think that by middle of next year, we're close to completion of that DFS. Obviously, there's a project financing thread that has to happen in parallel to that. There's also a power provider tender process that has to happen in parallel to that. And in a perfect world, we'd like to think we're in a position to make a final investment decision towards the end of 2020 and probably around about a two-year construction period before we produce late 2022 if all goes to plan. Okay. And how much cash have you got at the moment and how much do you think you're going to need to get the PFS published and out into the market? Yeah, so we've got, uh, if you look at our most recent quarterly, we've got uh, in the order of $8 million in cash and investments available. So the balance sheet is reasonably robust. We're comfortably funded to complete the PFS and the piloting, and post that, we'll need to look at sources of funding to carry us through the DFS. But for the next sort of quarter or two, we're pretty comfortably funded. Okay, great. So, so that's a bit of a differentiating factor in the market at the moment. What would you say, based on the work that you've done talking to investors and everything, what's the most important thing that investors don't really get about the project that you want to communicate? Yeah, look, I think a lot of investors are very used to the traditional metals, copper, zinc, you know, gold, iron ore, etc. I think manganese is one that is not well understood, but it's one that is facing some really interesting market dynamics, both from the battery space, but also from traditional supply-demand fundamentals, where these high-purity products have been dominated by China over the last several decades. But the China's advantages are being eroded through a number of factors, including depletion of their local manganese ores. So, there's a really good opportunity for players outside of China to get into this space. We talk to steelmakers and battery makers in Korea, Japan, North America, Europe. They're all very, very keen to see 
supply outside of China to come and offset some of the risks that go with doing trade with China. So they're welcoming us with open arms. We think the product, if we can make it, will be easily sold to bankable off-take uh, counterparties. And I think it's a growth market. So for those investors that are looking for something a little bit different with some really sound fundamentals with exposure to the battery sector, then I think you should take a closer look. Excellent. Well, Justin Brown, MD of ASX Listed Element 25, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks very much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. So that brings us to the end of our roundup for December. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.